Sebastian Younger is a writer and a reporter who was embedded for five months with the U.S. 2nd Battalion in the front lines of a war zone in the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan. In his book, War, he describes how to dodge a bullet fired from a high-powered rifle. Quote, The brain requires around two-tenths of a second to just understand simple visual stimuli and another two-tenths of a second to command muscles to react. The distance at which you might literally be able to dodge a bullet is around a thousand yards. You'd need a quarter second to register the tracer coming toward you. And at this point, the bullet has traveled 250 yards. A quarter second to instruct your muscles to react. The bullet has now traveled 500 yards. And a half second to actually move out of the way. The bullet will dodge, you dodge, will pass you with a distinctive snap. That's the sound of a small object breaking the sound barrier inches from your head. Now, some of you know exactly what this experience is like, but many of us don't have the faintest notion of what it would feel like to be in that kind of danger and having to respond that way in a kind of life or death situation. This morning in our study of the book of James, Pastor James describes a spiritual danger that faces every single one of us every day of our life as a Christian. James provides us with wisdom from above to help us respond rightly as we face a deadly enemy within that wages war against our very souls. So if you have your Bible, open up to James chapter one. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 19 to give you the context. And I'll focus most of our attention on verses 13 to 19. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 1011. And if you don't have a Bible that you can read, a Bible that you can read for yourself, please take the Pew Bible as a gift from us. We want you to have a Bible that you can read and understand for yourself. You remember that James is writing this letter mainly to Jewish Christians who had been scattered from Jerusalem throughout the Roman Empire. These are people that he formerly pastored in Jerusalem. And these Jewish believers in Jesus were going through lots of different trials. And so let's begin right there in verse 12. This is what scripture says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift 
And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. James answers this question. The question is this. What must you know about temptation? What do you need to know about this enemy that we all face called temptation? He wants us to know two things. Number one, you need to know how temptation works. You need to know how temptation works. Verses 13 to 16. Know how temptation works. And then number two, you need to know how temptation is overcome. Know how temptation is overcome. Verses 17 to 19a. And my prayer is that each one of us, every single one of us, would give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever, and that we would know in the bottom of our hearts that the Lord does not withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly. Number one. Know how temptation works. Verses 13 to 16. Several years ago, my children really enjoyed a certain TV show on the Discovery Channel. It was called How Do They Do It? It was a 30-minute show, and they looked at mainly how things worked, how things worked, and where those things came from. It was like a mini documentary for kids. And so each episode talked about a variety of things and they talked about where do they come from and how do they work. So we learned about the following. We learned about Turkish delight. We learned about nuclear reactors, lava lamps, grenade launchers, Morse codes, Zippo lighters, contact lenses, pencil sharpeners, and ice sculptures. We learned about where those things come from and how they actually work. However, as great as the TV show was, The producers never saw fit to explain where temptation comes from (laughs) and how temptation works. I would have loved to see an episode on that. Well, we don't have to wonder because James in these opening verses, verses 13 to 16, he explains for us where temptation comes from and how temptation works. All of us desperately need to know this. You came here this morning. Maybe you, this was the furthest thing from your mind. But James, as a great pastor, wants us to know, first, where does temptation come from? What is the origin or source of the temptations that we face, especially when we go through trials of various kinds? James begins... By affirming that our temptations do not come from God. God tests his children, but God never tempts his children. I'm going to underscore this. God tests his children. He tests our faith through trials. But God never, ever 
ever tempts or solicits his children to sin. Look at verse 12, just to remind you of where we are. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, notice this word, under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In our trials, God is testing our faith. We know from the scriptures, God tested the faith of Abraham, Genesis 22. We know that when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness and not knowing where their food was going to come from, God tested their faith and provided manna for them. He didn't give them manna for a whole month. They had to wait for him for their daily bread every morning. They had to see, is God going to come through in his promise? Yes, he did. He tested their faith. And James is telling us here in verses 3 all the way to verse 12, God tests the faith of his children in trials. But God never, ever, ever tempts us to sin. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And then he gives us the reason for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. James forbids you from ascribing or attributing your temptations to God. Because God, he tells us, is not tempted with evil. He is untemptable. To be tempted would be be completely contrary to God's good, righteous, and holy character. There's nothing in God that would even allow him to be tempted. God is good. God is righteous. God is, we sang at the very beginning, God is holy, what? Holy, holy. He is light in him. There is no darkness at all, not even a little bit. So God himself cannot be tempted. And therefore, because he is so good, God would never tempt anyone to sin. So James says, your temptations do not come from God. So don't ever say in your trials, well, God must be tempting me to sin. Few of us actually say or think that. But this is how we actually attribute our temptations to God. We blame our circumstances. When we blame our circumstances, when we say, well, you know, for instance, the reason I lost my temper and sinned against that guy who who on the road is because he cut me off. I mean, I, you know, I, I, if, if he hadn't cut me off on the road, I wouldn't have gotten road rage and I wouldn't have used that word right in the car. Right. Well, you're blaming your circumstances. You're saying, well. It's because of my boss that I got angry or it's because of my wife or it was because of my child. That's what actually led me to sin. Well, God's the author of your circumstances. And James is saying, don't ever blame God for your temptations. God is untemptable. He's good and therefore he tempts no one to sin. Now, we come from a long line of blame shifters. You realize this, right? All of us in this room are descended from blame shifters. Do you remember what happened in Eden? During the fall, what happened? As soon as the fall happened, Eve blames the serpent and Adam blames his wife 
who is really an indirect blame towards God. Remember, Adam's defense was, well, the wife, the woman whom you gave me. What, what is he saying? He's saying, well, God, you gave me her and she let me. So it's maybe your fault, God. You see? Eve blamed the serpent. Adam, Adam blamed his wife. But James says that's not where temptation comes from. Don't point the finger to your circumstances or to other people. James points the finger right to our own desires. Verse 14. But when each person is tempted, notice when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Your translation may say by his own lust, by his own evil desire. Temptation originates in our own sinful desires. So the problem, brothers and sisters, isn't just out there. The problem is in here. Now, some of you are thinking, well, wait a second. What about Satan? I mean, he's a deceiver. He tempts us. Okay, that's true. What about the world, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Don't Satan and the, doesn't the devil and the world tempt us to sin? Yes. But James isn't talking about those. James is talking about our own sinful flesh. He, he's starting with the enemy within. And if you are not on guard from the enemy within, you will be a pushover for the world and you will be a pushover for the devil. So James starts with our own desires. And what I want you to see in these verses is that James is like a professional football coach. On Monday morning, he's breaking down the game film from a loss the previous Sunday. And what he does in this passage, Pastor James is like a coach. He takes the video of the replay, the instant replay of a losing play in the previous game. And he takes you frame by frame, step by step in slow motion of how that losing play happened. He wants you to see this is what happens, brothers and sisters, every time you give in to temptation. He wants you to follow step by step, frame by frame, how temptation starts and where temptation ends. And so he's going to walk us through the process. He's going to walk us through the temptation cycle. Temptation begins actually with deception, with deception. I want you to notice that the first thing we need to know about this temptation cycle is actually the last thing James tells us in this section. Look at your look at your Bibles. Look at verse 16. After telling us about this temptation cycle, what does he command us in verse 16? Do not be what? Deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. You see, James is calling us right there at the end. And he's telling us something that happens every time we are tempted. Temptation always involves deception. That's the first step in the temptation cycle. Temptation always involves deception. Hebrews 3.13 says that sin is deceitful. Now, this is extremely practical for you. When you sense that you are being tempted to sin, 
Brothers and sisters, warning bells should go off in your soul telling you, I am being lied to. I'm about to be deceived. I'm being told false promises that are not true. I'm about to be deceived. Now, I don't know about many of you. I don't wake up in the morning thinking, here's my to-do list. Number one, get deceived. I, I don't do that, right? But see, sin is subtle. Sin is deceptive. And so James says, you need to know that every time you are tempted to sin, it involves a lie. You're being told a lie. And when you follow that temptation, you're, you're believing the lie. Instead of what God has promised and what God has said in his good word. I cannot tell you how many times during a pastoral counseling situation, these kind of words comes out of the person's mouth. I don't even know how it happened. I don't know how I ended up where I did. It just kind of came out of nowhere. And I never, ever would have thought I would have done that. Because they were deceived. They gave in to this deception. Temptation, listen, will take you farther than you want to go. It will leave you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you far more than you want to pay. Because temptation always hides the real price tag. Sin is deceptive. And that's the first step in the temptation cycle. Temptation begins with deception. And then comes the second step, which is attraction. Attraction. Verse 14. Attraction. But each person is tempted when he is, notice, lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation moves quickly from deception to attraction. And I guess James was a fisherman because you notice the imagery that he uses here. Children, look at the words he's using. It's the words that would describe how you would go fishing. So he's using fishing imagery. Notice we are lured and enticed by our own desire. So this is the idea. We're like fish in a pond and all of a sudden temptation comes right in front of us and it's like a shiny hook, but it's not just a shiny hook. What's on the hook? A plump, juicy worm, right? And it's dangling in front of us and we're fish and we see the, we don't see the hook. We see the worm and we, we want the worm. We desire the worm. Uh, we, we, we are enticed by it. We're attracted by it. And so what do we do? We bite the worm. And then we're hooked. And then we're, what happens? We're lured away. We're dragged away like a fish on a baited hook. We're dragged away. And so that's the second step. We're attracted by it. Sin comes to us in deception and temptation comes to us and it makes it look attractive to us. And so we take the bite. We take the, the worm. And I want you to think about this. That's what happened in the garden. James is thinking about it this way. In Genesis 1 and 2, all we hear repeated over and over again is that God made something and it was good. And he made it and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And then it was very good. And up until that point, God, the creator, is the one determining what is good for humanity. 
But then in Genesis 3, the first time that word good is used of a creature determining what is good, it led to sin. We're told in Genesis 3, Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was desirable to make one wise. And it was a delight to the eyes. So she took it and ate and she gave it to her husband. The first time we determine what is good apart from God and his word, we're being led away. So temptation begins with deception. Then it comes with attraction. And then that leads to number three, conception. Verse 15, conception. When desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. James switches his illustration here from fishing imagery to biological imagery to conception and to childbirth. You see that. And so what James is teaching us is this. Unless these desires, this temptation is resisted, unless you mortify it in the old Puritan language, unless you put it to death by the spirit, unless you resist it, these sinful desires don't stay put. They don't stay put. These sinful desires will ultimately express themselves in sinful actions. That's what James is saying. They give birth to sin. James is not saying that the lusts of the flesh are not sinful. What he's saying is those desires will eventually give birth to actions. They will give birth to actual sins. Take your Bibles, just flip over to see this. Look at James chapter 4. Some of you probably had a fight or a quarrel before you came to church this morning. And so I want to help you know where that came from, okay? Don't look at me like, don't laugh. You know it's true. Some of you do. Look at verse 1. We know a lot about this as the pastor's family, right? We, we're not immune to this as well. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now stop. You would say, oh, it's the other person or it's my circumstances. Look what James says. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire. There's that word. And you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You see, James is saying that our passions, our desires give birth to sinful actions. He's not saying anything that Jesus didn't say. Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, it's not what you put into the body that defiles a man. It's what comes out from the heart. It's what's within us that produces all of these external sins. Mark chapter seven, verse 21. So the temptation cycle begins with deception, then comes attraction, then comes conception, and then finally, fruition. Fruition. Number four, verse 15. And when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth or gives birth, death. What does temptation look like when it comes to its natural fruition? The answer that James gives is death. Eternal death. The wages of sin is death. When sin grows up, it gives birth to death. Now, James 
is a wonderfully wise pastor. Okay? And what he's doing for us in this step-by-step, frame-by-frame, walking us through how quickly we can be led astray, what he's doing is he's taking our gaze and he's showing us where temptation leads to. When you're tempted to sin, you're often not thinking of the consequences that await you down the road because you're caught up in it. So James is taking us and saying, look where this leads. Temptation to sin looks so good. But in the end, it looks like a rotting corpse. Temptation to sin can feel like a party. But in the end, it's like being at a funeral. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Now, at this point, you're thinking, well, I hope the rest of the sermon is this encouraging, right? (laughs) Some of you are being tempted to despair right now in this moment. You're like, let's just close in prayer, right? Death, funeral, welcome to Franconia Baptist Church, right? But here's the thing. One of my favorite cartoons growing up was something called G.I. Joe. And at the end of every episode of G.I. Joe, they would do this like random public service announcement. And they would always end every episode by saying, knowing is half the battle. And what James wants us to know is that, brothers and sisters, you've got to know this. You've got to know this temptation cycle. This happens every single day. You've got to know it. You've got to know how temptation works. But knowing that is only half the battle. You also need to know not just how temptation works, but how do you overcome temptation? How do you fight against temptation? How do you avoid it? How do you persevere through temptation? Well, he's going to tell us. How is temptation overcome? He's going to tell us in verses 17 to 19. So let's look at that. That's number two. Know how temptation is overcome. Verses 17 to 19. Verses 17 and 18. James tells us three things. There's three things that he tells us in this verse, in these verses, to help us overcome temptation. Number one, number one, to overcome temptation, you must know that your heavenly father is good. You must know in the bottom of your heart that your heavenly father is good. He's good. And let me just say as an aside, every single time you give in to temptation, you're doubting his goodness towards you. And that's what James is getting at. You can talk about the the devil. You can talk about your circumstances about the world, but in our hearts, when we give into temptation, we're fundamentally saying by our actions, God is holding out good for me. God is not for me. He's against me. God's word isn't true that we're denying his goodness. And so James begins by saying, you must know, brothers and sisters, that your heavenly father is good. Verse 17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 
God doesn't tempt you to sin. He gives good and perfect gifts to you every single day. He's a good father. Notice that word every. He doesn't say some of the time. He doesn't say few times. He doesn't say, he says every. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from the father of lights. Someone asked me this week, what's the difference between a good gift and a perfect gift? It's a good question. Just look back up. I think this will be helpful. Look back up in James. He says in verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse five. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Do you see that? Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Do you see that? I understand because of the language there that one of the good and perfect gifts he gives us as we go through trials is what? Wisdom. Wisdom to help us to walk through these trials. But then look up in verse four. That word perfect shows up again. And let your steadfastness have its full effect that you may be what? Perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So I understand what James is saying here is part of what he gives us in our trials is wisdom to know how to walk and persevere through them so that he might make us perfect, complete, mature, lacking in nothing. So what does he mean when he says the father of lights? We know from Genesis 1 and Psalm 74 and Psalm 136, God is the benevolent creator of all things, including the heavens above, the stars, the sun and the moon. He made all of the lights, as it were. And what James is saying here is God is the father, as it were, of all of those glorious fountains of light. And by saying that he's good and that he gives good gifts, you should recall that your father, as it were, is more full of goodness than the sun and the stars are full of light. He's the father of lights. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you a good gift giver? In every family, there's someone who's really good at giving gifts And there's also that person who's really good at giving lame gifts, right? So if you're not the good giver, well, you may be the other. I'm not sure. Um, But here's the thing. There's that person that nobody wants to get their name at Christmas time. Like you're like, oh, it's, it's that aunt who just gives you the same sweater every year or whatever. And so there are some people who just don't give good gifts. But here's the thing. That's not like God. God gives good gifts because he's good. He only gives good gifts to his children. He only gives perfect gifts to his children. You have never received a gift from God that you want to return. (laughs) Because he, he always gives good gifts. What's one good gift that he will give you as you persevere through trials? Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive what? The crown of life that God promises to those who love him. He gives good gifts. And so to overcome temptation, brothers and sisters, you have got to know in the bottom of your hearts that he's good. So let me ask you, do you believe that your God and father is good? He is good and he does good. He only does what is good if you are his child. Number two, 
You need to know that he's good, but you need to to overcome temptation. You must also know that your heavenly father is always good. He's always good. You say, well, didn't you just say that? Well, I want to stress what James is stressing. God just doesn't give good gifts because he is good. He gives good gifts all the time. Look again at verse 17. Look at the end of the, of the verse. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do you see? What James is saying is that God is always good because God doesn't change. There's no variation or shadow due to change. You look up at the sun, it's moving around. The sun goes up, the sun goes down, the moon comes up, the moon goes down. There's lots of changes in the heavens. But James is saying God is the father of lights, but he doesn't change like the heavens change. God is always good. He's the father of lights. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no variation. There's no change in God. Now, why is this important? Can you imagine if God changed his character every day? You wake up one day and he's good. And you wake up the next day and he's bad. That would be hell. But you see, brothers and sisters, God doesn't change. He's always good. His mercies are new every morning. If you believe that God changes, this is how you will live the Christian life. When things are good, he loves me. When things are rough, he loves me not. When things are good, he loves me. When things are bad, he loves me not. Do you see? He's telling these Christians who are going through trials of various kinds, your trials come and go, but your God never changes. He is good towards you and he is always good towards you. And you've got to believe that. You've got to know that when you're going through temptation. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3, 6. Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Theologians call this Divine immutability. God is immutable. And you're thinking, who cares? No, I care and you should care because of this. This isn't just something to write in your notes or something to say, hey, God's immutable. You need to not just know this. You need to sing this. This is something worth singing about. Do you realize that? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is No shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not as thou hast been. Thou will forever be great is thy faithfulness. Do you see this isn't something to esoterically affirm. This is something, brothers and sisters, to sing about. We change. We go through trials. But God is perfectly good and he never changes. And you've got to believe that if you go through temptations. He's always good. And so right now you're thinking, yeah, but I'm going through this. James knows how wicked our hearts are and how deceitful we are. And so he takes one last step 
to remind believers that he really is good. Look at verse 18. To overcome temptation, this is the third and final one. To overcome temptation, you must know that you are his new creation in Christ. You must know that you are his new creation in Christ. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do you see what he's doing here? Lest we think, I'm not sure God is good. James gives us one example of a good and perfect gift he has given to every single one of us who's a believer. Namely, the gift of the new birth. The gift of being born again through the gospel. He has made us his children. He's made us new creations in Christ. He says there, he says that he did this. He brought about this new birth. He gave us birth. And notice it was not of our will. Notice what he says. It was of his own will. It was in the exercise of his will. It was of his own choice by his sovereign plan. He gave us birth. He brought us forth. This is language from John chapter three. You remember when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus who had this long spiritual resume and Jesus looks at him and says, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be, another way to render it is, you must be born from above or you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so James says, where does that new birth, I can't cause myself to be born again just as I couldn't cause myself to be born in my mother's womb, right? So where does this come from? James says it's of his own will, of his own will, he brought us forth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Ephesians chapter two, verse verse five. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. That's what you say. Amen. (laughs) When we notice this striking contrast, look at verse 15. What does sin bring forth? Sin begets or brings forth death. But God, verse 18, brings forth eternal life. It's beautiful. The new birth happened through the word or by the word of truth. That is the gospel. So the gospel, the word of truth is the good news that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here. And we want you to know when we use that word gospel, we're not talking about Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. We're talking about the good news, the message of salvation, namely that we are sinners. We have sinned against this good God. We've done what we thought was good and not what he says is good. And because of our own sin, we've separated ourselves from him. And because of our sin, we're under divine judgment because he's good. Every sin that's ever been committed will be paid for either on the cross or forever in judgment in hell. Because he's good. He actually cares what happens in this universe. But to demonstrate his amazing goodness, 
He sent forth his son. The eternal son became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the life we were supposed to live, but haven't. And then he went to the cross in obedience to his heavenly father. And he died the death that we were supposed to die. He died in our place for our sins. And he rose again on the third day for our justification. And now this savior, Jesus Christ, says to anyone who would ever trust in him and turn from their sins, come to me, bring your sins to me and I will give you my righteousness. Receive me as your savior. And Jesus says he promises this life, eternal life for anyone who would trust in him. And you say, well, why did God do us? Why did he bring us the word of truth? Why did he cause us to be born again? Look at what James says. So that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James pulls that language from the Old Testament. You remember that Israel was called to bring their first fruits to the Lord. You remember that? The first fruits were the best portion of the crops. They belonged especially to the Lord. And those first fruits were a reminder every year that God keeps his promises to his people. And what James is saying here is if you're a Christian, you're a new creation in Christ and that you are the fruits, the first fruits of what God is doing in the whole universe, that he is going to bring about his purposes in this world and he's going to remake the whole world in a new heavens and a new earth. And if you don't, if you want to look around for evidence of that, James says, look at the believers. God has started a work in the church and he's going to carry it to the whole world. He's going to renovate the whole world. So brothers and sisters, don't let your trials persuade you that God isn't good. And so what this means for each one of us is we're going to have to preach to ourselves. I preach to you once a week, but you're going to have to preach to yourself every single day. And what do you preach to yourself when you face trials and temptations? This is what you do. You say to yourself, God demonstrates his own love towards me. And that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. You say to yourself, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You say to yourself, for God so loved the world that he gave. You hear that word again? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And you say to yourself, I know that that for all of those who are called according to his purpose, God is working out everything for good to those who love him. But sisters, you have to preach yourself these truths so that you can bear up and know that your heavenly father is good. I started this sermon by thinking about how to avoid a bullet. Let me close with this. Some wise words from someone who knows a lot about temptation and sin, a guy named John Owen. I'll close with this. These were words from the 1600s that I think will be helpful for you this morning. John Owen, the great pastor there, said this, quote, It's the heart where provisions are stored to fight against temptation. When an enemy draws near to a castle to besiege it, 
If he finds it well furnished with provisions for a siege and so able to hold out, he doesn't assault it. If Satan, the prince of this world, comes and finds our hearts fortified against temptation, he will flee from us. James 4, 7. And then he says this, the provision to be laid up in our hearts is provided for us in the gospel. Gospel provisions keep the heart full of a sense of the love of God. So brothers and sisters, store up your heart with a sense of the love of God in Jesus. Remember your adoption and justification and your acceptance with God. Fill your heart with the beauty of Christ's death for you. This is the greatest preservative against the power of temptation in the whole world. My beloved brothers and sisters, know this. Let's pray. Father, help us to not enter into temptation. We pray that you would deliver us from the evil one. And help us in our trials and in our temptations to know beyond a shadow of doubt that you are good, that you do good, and that in the gospel you have demonstrated your glorious goodness towards us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.